All right, we are back. Uh, news item from The Economist magazine regarding uh, world's worst dictator number four. Paying a visit to world's worst dictator number one. Evidently, Hu Jintao is in Africa, a place he knows well, having visited it before. Noted The Economist, all over Africa, a commodity-hungry China is winning friends by building roads, ports, and railways. He will be especially welcomed in Sudan. China not only buys about 80% of the oil exports that are making parts of Sudan rich, it also shields Sudan from being held to account in the UN Security Council for the Darfur killings. Omar el-Bashir will be especially welcoming to the Chinese because their policy is not to interfere in Africa's politics. Noted the magazine in the case of Darfur, this liberal Chinese stance is being exploited as a license to kill. Magazine also noted that most of Sudan's best oil fields are in disputed areas between the north and south, and as China's economic interests and dependency spread, it's going to have to learn the need to invest in peace as well as pipelines. Sometimes that will require it to put unwelcome pressure on its trading partners. The magazine noted that this uh, may allow Hu Jintao to put some pressure on Omar al-Bashir. Said the magazine, Mr. Hu has a rare opportunity to combine self-interest with statesmanship. He should grab it. Giving Hu Jintao and the, and the Chinese Communist Party's uh, record in China, I, we have to say that doesn't seem terribly likely. But as the magazine points out, having peace does protect your pipelines, so uh, perhaps in this case, good will come out of economic self-interest. And since we're talking today about uh, the horrible effects that bad government, uh, tyrants, dictators running countries can have on their populace, we need to now continue with Dr. Andrew Nangalama, who spoke with us last week about his native Uganda. In the wake of political chaos under Idi Amin, Dr. Nangalama had to flee the country for his life. And he's here today to tell us about what happened. Dr. Andrew Nangalama, welcome back. Thank you, sir. We, uh, we left off last week talking about uh, you having to leave the country, but let's backtrack a little bit to, to what, what you had to flee. Idi Amin was famous in the 1970s for the, uh, the turmoil that he unleashed in your homeland. Uh, I know he gained a lot of uh, international attention when he decided he was going to evict all of the Indian merchants in Uganda that had been part of the colonial system. They fulfilled a, a major role in the economy, and he sent them all packing. Yes, I mean, he gave the uh, Ugandan Asians uh, 90 days uh, to leave Uganda. He, get, he gave them a choice either to choose Uganda as a country of their primary citizenship or to go to another country where they, you know, chose to be citizens. And uh, many of the um, Ugandan Asians uh, were whom we call the Indians in Uganda. They were born there. Some of them were third generation. That's right. the only home they knew. They were training there, some in the universities, the businessmen. But in, initially started as maybe something that maybe was not uh, serious, but later on they realized with the killings and uh, unsafety in Uganda, the majority of people left in the panic. Well, it is portrayed in the movie, The Last King of Scotland, a very excellent uh, flick, which I know you had a chance to see. The movie ends at the point where there was much turmoil regarding the raid at Entebbe. 
Um, you described in last week's program that as a result of uh, you and other university students sort of being sort of cheering the fact that uh, that Amin had been um, thwarted, they responded with a great deal of force, airplanes, tanks at the university campus. At that time, of course, uh, people had lost hope in what liberation of the country. First of all, you could not tune on a radio and listen to any station. If you were caught uh, listening to any station on the radio outside the country, you'll be put in jail. And the people even lost their lives because of that. Wow. Even reading international newspapers were not allowed. So it's like for years now we were kept in dark. And when there was uh, a rumor that, you know, uh, the hostages who had been uh, held by Idi Amin and, uh, you know, the Palestinian terrorists, they were rescued. We all cheered up because for the first time Idi Amin had been challenged. And when he had that news, that's when he sent his military, his whole battalion, to attack the university. And I was one of the students' leaders at that time. So I was picked up, you know, I was beaten, uh, roughed up. And in the end, uh, I ended up in some facility which had the very limited medical care. And I was able to escape and uh, find my way to Uganda-Kenya border. So you, you knew right then you had to get out of the country? I had to get out of the country because I knew if when they found out what my background, where I came from, I was going to be executed. The facility where I was in the medical, medical closings, which I was helped, and then I was able to flee the, the country uh, up to Uganda-Kenya border. That's about what, three, 300 miles? That's about probably 200 miles to the border. And uh, when I got to the border, the border had uh, military and uh, all, all the bodyguards. Uh, I had to f- go through the bushes. And uh, when I went to the side of Kenya, I stood on the hill and I looked at Uganda and nailed down. It was like freedom to me. Wow. Did you have to go to refugee camp or how did that? What, when I got in Kenya, um, I got to some people used to having seen Ugandan refugees. I told this man who, who was a farmer that I could work for him and uh, you know I needed to raise money so that I could travel to Nairobi. Uh, he, was, he allowed me to work on the farm. I had the same clothes, same shoes. I had not changed for three weeks and I worked on the farm. Then I was able to raise just money enough to buy me a ticket on a bus to travel from up country to Nairobi. So what, but what was in Nairobi when you when got When I there? went to Nairobi, I found uh, yes, where there were some of the churches, and I went to one of the largest churches, and uh, I just waited in the parking lot when they were coming out. I had torn clothes. I was very dirty. I not had a shower for days, and... I told them I was a Ugandan refugee, and suddenly enough, there were also some Ugandan refugees who had been in church that day. But some recognized me, and they knew me from Uganda. Wow. I was welcomed, and uh, I was taken to uh, one of the homes uh, run by one of the churches, and um, then I was helped to go to the United Nations refugee program. I got interviewed, and... um, I got assistance, and then I was sent to a refugee camp. You're in a refugee camp in Kenya. How did you get to the United States? 
when I was in the refugee camp, there were some churches and some university service people who wanted to help uh, students who had been displaced from Uganda, especially the university, because the university I came from had been the, one of the most popular universities in Black uh, uh, Sub-Sahara Africa, you know. Uh, University of Makerere, that was one time the headquarters for uh, World Health Tropical Medicine. And that was a joint university of Cambridge and London. So uh, some of those people came to our assistance. Uh, I got a scholarship to come either to, to go to Edinburgh to finish my veterinary school or Cambridge. And uh, I also had a scholarship through the... Episcopal Church to come to California. Uh, when I came to California, I came to go to veterinary school, but I ended up in Fresno, California. You, I should r- remind people, I don't know if we mentioned it last week, you were you were basically a semester away from getting your DVM. Yes, I was a semester away from getting my doctor of veterinary medicine in Uganda. And that was still an option had you gone to Scotland? Yeah, if I had gone to Scotland, which is uh, in uh, Edinburgh University, I would have completed that. But you know, of course, I chose to come to California because it's like a new world. You know? Right. I am curious, Dr. Nagalama. You you got a PhD. You're close to getting your DVM, but then you decided to go into medicine instead. What what led to that? I think when I got in Davis. Um, and I started doing my PhD work, I realized probably my research I was doing was getting more and more interesting with any relating to medicine than veterinary medicine. You, uh, you have been back home to Uganda since? I was in Uganda 2005. For the first time, I took my, both to my daughters, Samali and Mukai. First time they went and... Uh, see what Christmas was in Uganda or in the third world. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was very interesting that instead of buying gifts, which we do buy during Christmas time, we make donations to the people in the village. Well, Dr. Nangalama, it's been uh, been quite a story and it's been quite a road for Uganda from Idi Amin to to the current uh, regime. Are you pretty confident the country's... uh on the right track at this point? I think it can do better, you know, and looking back, of course, having stayed in the States, uh, California is one of the best places one can ever be if you have ambition and uh, you try to work very hard. But I know uh, Uganda is a very agricultural country. It has quite a bit of human resources. Uh, We can do better and um, continue to support and help my, my country pass, at personal level as much as I can. All right. Well, I know you are going to be indeed raising more money in May. So when the time comes, we'll have you back. Sure. I will come. Any help that can come by. Thank you very much. Thank you. We're speaking with Dr. Andrew Nangalama. He's currently a local physician. He earned his MD here at UC Davis as well as his PhD uh, back in the 1970s. He was a student of veterinary medicine in his home country of Uganda. All right, and in some follow-up uh, closer to home, we note that local congressman John Doolittle uh, is still opposing wage hikes for the Marianas Islands. By way of review, the U.S. captured those islands from Japan during World War II and administered them under the United Nations mandate until 1978 when they became a U.S. commonwealth. 
Low wages and easy immigration to the Northern Marianas from China, the Philippines, and elsewhere drew cheap labor for foreign-owned factories. They were allowed to sell their low-cost clothing, shoes, and other products with made-in-USA labels, duty-free here in the United States. Northern Marianas' 1976 Commonwealth Covenant with the U.S. government exempted the islands from federal immigration and import taxes. It also set a lower minimum wage in effort to spur economic growth for the island's 82,000 people. But uh, Nancy Pelosi's House Democrats uh, say that a just-passed minimum wage bill will be changed to cover all U.S. territories, including the Marianas Islands and American Samoa. John Doolittle, a lieutenant of Tom DeLay, uh, was using disgraced lobbyist Jack Abramoff uh, to meet with a lobbying team and find ways to block changes to minimum wage restrictions and other uh, restrictions on the Marianas Islands. In other Doolittle news, the congressman's campaign committee reported a couple weeks back that it owed the Roosevelt Republicans' wife nearly $137,000 in fundraising commissions lingering on from the 2006 elections. But unfortunately for the Doolittle family, it appears that its year-end debts exceeded cash reserves by $166,000. But uh, the month before last, Doolittle said that his wife Julie would no longer be a paid fundraiser for his re-election campaigns. Doolittle said in an interview that Julie Doolittle was so upset by news reports about her 15% fundraising commissions that she decided she no longer wanted the job. Well, they're going to be paying a little bit better over in the Marianas Islands for in the, uh, in the clothing industry, so maybe Julie Doolittle can find work there. All right, and our final item for today's program, a follow-up, we did, a follow-up on our comments sometime back about Airborne a product marketed as helping you prevent illness during the cold and flu season, well, things are worse than we thought. Noted Joy Bauer on msnbc.com, the contents of Airborne provides a mixture of vitamins, minerals, and herbs with large amounts of vitamin C and straight vitamin A. Bottom line on this, there are no credible studies to support Airborne's effectiveness. If it works at all, it's most likely due to the large amounts of vitamin C, which you can buy for a lot less money in plain pill form. If you pop a pill when you board a plane, don't expect your body to exhibit miraculous germ-repelling ability. But worse, the amount of vitamin A in the product could be downright dangerous. Each daily dose provides 100% of the daily value for straight vitamin A, the type most health experts now steer people away from. A recent study on the health benefits of taking vitamin A to smokers was terminated early when it was clear that vitamin A had a deleterious effect on the health of the participants. The package directions on Airborne say take every three to four hours up to three times a day, which is clearly a health risk when you start tallying up those vitamin A totals. This correspondent can uh, confirm that during my training in medical school, I had a patient who killed herself with mega doses of vitamin A. It took her a while to do it, but she was determined. She was admitted again and again with liver damage. She was counseled not to use vitamin A. Every time she got out, she was convinced the reason she was sick was she didn't have enough vitamin A. 
Now, she took a lot more than you, you can probably get from taking a few airborne a day. But nevertheless, uh, we agree with MSNBC. Not a good idea. That's it for the show. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. Our thanks go out to the distinguished author, David Wallachinsky, as well as our good friend and local physician, Dr. Andrew Nangalama. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week at the same time.